turn now in God's holy word to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. In this letter, we're going to be looking at one verse, particularly from this short letter, this letter that is 25 verses long, but we're going to be looking at verse 5 of this letter that Jude writes. And this letter of Jude begins with what is common among all of us Christians. At the beginning of this letter, verses 1 and 2, Jude is addressing that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ, very much emphasizing that he belongs to Jesus Christ. His first loyalty is to Jesus Christ. He shares the same master. He shares the same calling as all those whom he is writing to, those called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved or kept in Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ keeps all those who have trusted in him. Keeps all those trusted in him. And we all have in common blessings, mercy, peace, and love, which Jude writes about here. This is all possible because of the gospel message, because of what Christ did for his people. Now Jude has a strong desire to write about this. He has a strong desire, and you can see it in the first two verses, to to write about what we have in common. In the beginning of the third verse, he says, While I was very diligent to write unto you concerning our common salvation. He's there again. This is a strong desire that he has, but he feels compelled to write about something that's a sense of duty. Almost like he's saying this, I would rather talk about something a little bit more positive than what I'm going to talk about here. This is in no way my hobby horse to talk about negative things. But it is necessary because of the situation which has arisen in verse 4. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. Now no doubt Jude himself has noticed, but it hasn't been noticed by the churches at large. Men who made grace a license to sin. Men who overthrow restraint and use grace as a license to do whatever they want to do. Verse 4 says, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is very attractive today. As it was back then. To abuse grace. This evening we're going to look at the the fifth verse here. This example that Jude gives. uh, To remind them of the danger. Of what it means to follow after these men. Uh, The danger it is to go in this direction. If they will allow themselves to do that. And to not. In verse 3 as he calls them to. Contend for the faith. Once for all delivered unto the saints. And this example, verse 5, it shows, dear friends, that there are people among God's people, among the outward expression of the church, who don't know God. 
who don't know God. And there are those who are, as our title will be, lost among the people of God. Jude, we're going to read from verses 1 to 7. Now, before we look at this fifth verse, let us hear God's holy and infallible word. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, uh, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who do not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal Fire may the Lord bless the reading of his word. That verse, once again, we're going to be looking at here this evening, verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. For many in the professing church today, The idea that there are people within the church that will perish, it seems unthinkable. The visible expression of the church I'm speaking of here, those who profess true faith in Jesus Christ, at least outwardly. And we may look around us and we may see people who follow God, at least outwardly, Uh, people who attend church. Uh, People who are perhaps reading books about God. And we think we are not perfect, but we will all be in heaven, won't we? Now, while I say all this, I don't want us to develop a suspicious spirit. Thinking, is is so-and-so saved or lost? I don't want us to go in this direction. If somebody has a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ... We're all imperfect. We should accept that and that person and love that person and embrace that person as a brother or sister in Christ. However, at the same time, I want us to still acknowledge the danger that Jude is writing about here in this letter. A reality that no matter how good the church is. Now, remember at that time, this was the only body of professing believers upon the earth. No matter how good a church may or may not be upon this earth, it is still subject to mixture 
and error. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith says this, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. Not everyone who professes to believe in the best churches all around are truly believers. Now, we're not talking about the liberal church down the road who perhaps denies most of the scriptures. We're not talking about the difficult neighbor down the road who maybe doesn't want to talk to you, professes to be a believer, but doesn't want to talk to you because you believe the Bible. It is talking about the purest churches, the best of the best. As pure as they will be on this earth, this side of eternity, all need the gospel. All need the gospel because we can all think, well, we're all saved. What do we need to hear the gospel for? What do we need to hear the truth for? We all need to be warned of the dangers of following false teaching. Because, dear friends, there are souls at stake. There are souls at stake. It is possible that there are here, this very evening, people perhaps have come to church their whole life, been baptized, never missed a church service, but never been born again. If your heart is still a slave to sin. The first point we're going to look at from this fifth verse is the focus. The focus. The first point. There is here an example of the end of the ungodly person. The direction that they are surely going in. Now it is something that they have heard before. It seems here. Jude writes, but I want To remind you, though you once knew this. Though you once knew this. Now maybe this has drifted out of their memory. Maybe this is something they've somewhat forgotten. But Jude is bringing them to an example they know. Something they know. Sometimes we'll do this when we're talking to people about various things. If you think of the the abortion debate... What will people point out about the life of the unborn? Everyone knows that murder is wrong. To kill an innocent person, not committed of a crime, is wrong. We're appealing to their conscience, aren't we? We're appealing to something that they know. They've been created in the image of Almighty God. And God has put eternity in their hearts. They've been made in the image of God. And they have that natural Empathy for another human being. This is why when women who are pregnant have scans before they decide to have an abortion, about 80% of them decide not to go through with it. Why is that? They have a natural empathy towards another human being. They see it's not a blob of cells anymore. They see it's a life In that womb. This life in the womb is a human being. That dear child. How can you do this? Because you know. That killing is wrong. They're making a case upon the light of nature. Aren't they? They're pointing out something to them. They want to ignore. People who want to have an abortion. But they know. And they know deep down. They're pointing out something that they know. And Jude here is bringing this example. 
that they know, to emphasize the danger. Uh, They could think, well, this is no big deal. Come on, Jude, you're making too much of a thing about this. These men have come in unnoticed. So most likely, most of the reading is, are not going to take this seriously. What's all the fuss? You know that among you, in times past, here's a concrete example of people perishing among the people of God. A people who have... Who thought they were safe. They were brought out of Egypt. Delivered. They were part of the exodus. They were brought out through the Passover. Surely we're safe. We're fine. Perhaps when you're talking to people out in the world. Maybe they're not convinced by your quoting of scripture. But here Jude is doing something else. He's giving an extra example. Here's something you know. Here's something you know deep down. Because you've been taught this before. Think about the LGBT issue. We have more and more families, relationships, churches, work situations being affected by these issues. I dare say many of you are probably being affected by these issues in your work situations and other things. Issues of people rejecting the light of nature. Rejecting the things that they know. That the evidence is all around them. Of the things that they know. Romans 1.21 says. Because although they knew God. They did not glorify him as God. Nor were thankful. But became futile in their thoughts. And in their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they knew God. It is good when we're trying to persuade people of the dangers of their actions to appeal to the things that they know. Perhaps someone has gone to church all their life and they've left. Appeal to the fact of the truth that they know. They know because though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They know, but they suppress this truth. They know it deep down. They, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And on top of that, you can point out the miseries. Jude is going to point out the miseries here of sin, destruction, and doom that awaits those who will follow in the way of the ungodly. That they're not doing what they were created to do. What were we created to? What, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And if we're doing something away from that. There's misery. There's misery. That's why we've been made. That's our purpose in this life. And that is convicting to the world. That's convincing. Let us be also convinced our own selves of the dangers of sin. And turning away from God. So we've looked at number one, the focus. Number two now, the forewarned. The forewarned. Some Christians today may be tempted to think, uh, when, when we read verses like this of the, the, the children of God in the wilderness, well, did they have the gospel? Did they have the truth? Were they warned at all? We may be tempted to think, well, the gospel just came with Jesus in the New Testament era. Did they have it before that? These people were warned. 
they were warned. It is tempting for us to think at times that God is not fair to people. Now, we don't really want fairness, do we? we, If we had perfect justice, that would send us all to hell. He is merciful to many, but he is just, pure justice to those who are in hell today. He owes us nothing. He owes us absolutely nothing but the wrath of God. But we and they in the wilderness have been warned. How are the people saved? Again, verse 5. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, saved out of the land of Egypt, but how could they then perish? How, is, how does this make sense? They were part of the outward expressions of religion, but yet they didn't truly believe in their hearts. Remember the Passover. Remember what happened. The Passover lamb is killed. The blood is applied to the doorpost and over the door. And what happens when the destroyer comes? He passes over that home. So the hope of the people in the time of the Passover was the blood of the lamb. Wasn't it? The hope of the people in that time was that blood. And if they didn't have that blood, the destroyer would come in. But it's not just this physical blood, is it? Of this specific lamb that they needed to be looking towards. There was a greater lamb that they needed to look towards. In the New Testament, who is the Passover lamb? It says, In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was was sacrificed for us. The lambs of the Old Testament system, all the lambs and all the blood pointed toward the ultimate sacrifice, the blood of the lamb that would take away the sin of the world. Friends, there needs to be the application of this. The Passover gives us a picture of the gospel, doesn't it? Those who are under the blood of the Lamb will will not be destroyed. Those who are not under the blood of the Lamb will be. There's two groups of people described in the land of Egypt before they were brought through the Red Sea. Those Under the blood. And those under the wrath of God. But among the people. Are people. Who did not believe with their hearts. Who haven't trusted. They've trusted in the outward ceremony. They think as long as I do this. As long as I partake of the Passover. As long as I do these ceremonies. As long as I go wrong with the group. I'm okay. But as we read earlier in Numbers 14, it showed their hearts. They, were, they weren't satisfied. They didn't trust in the promises of God like Caleb and Joshua did. They spoke evil of the promises. And they spread fear. They did not trust in the ultimate lamb and his blood and what it pointed toward. 
the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said in, in John 1.29. We, too, need to have faith in this blood to be delivered. We don't need to just be saved in this world. We also need to be saved from the wrath to come, in the world to come. The wrath that will come upon all the children of disobedience. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had in you, and how you turned from God to idols, from, no, sorry, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That Lamb, that blood delivers us. His death delivers us from the wrath of the destroyer. And all those who are not under this blood, who are not trusting in what the, the, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, as spoken about in Genesis 3.15, those who would not trust in that promise, they're still under the wrath of God. They're still trusting in idols. See that reference in, in Paul in First Thessalonians. Either they're trusting in idols or they're trusting in the true and living God. And if they're trusting in Jesus, they're delivered from the wrath to come. All that to say is we face the same death that those Egyptians face. The same destruction the Egyptians face if we do not believe ourselves. We can be part of all the outward Expressions it will actually make our condemnation worse. If we're not a believer in Jesus Christ, or we're, we're partaking of the Lord's table, we pour more and more wrath upon ourselves. We need the blood of the Lamb to protect us and to see that we too are sinners. It's not just the people out there who don't come to church. They need Christ too. But so do we. So do we. We need him and have you trusted in Christ it's not have you memorized the shorter catechism it's not how many times you've read your bible have you trusted in Jesus Christ Uh, do you delight in him do you love him you know so that when you do come to the Lord's table and if you're a believer I encourage you to do that that you would be nourished and fed by Christ himself Do you love him? Do you love him? Because just like the people in the wilderness, you too have been forewarned. Number three now, the forsaken. The forsaken. What was the land of Canaan a picture of? They were traveling away from Egypt, slavery, bondage, misery in Egypt, through the wilderness, toward the land of Canaan. Acceptance with God. God's favor, God's love to be in the presence of God. And what does it say then in the journey that many died, many were destroyed, that they were rejected and forsaken by God himself. Just as much as the Egyptians were forsaken and judged 
when they attempted to go through the Red Sea and follow after the people of God, were drowned. What did they lack to enter the promised land? The promised land is a picture. Again, there's all these wonderful pictures in the Old Testament of the gospel. We need to see the gospel over and over again, don't we? So that we will love the gospel. The Old Testament, you can think of it as almost like a picture book. You know, when we're, when we're children, we read, the, you know, uh, picture books. And then maybe when we're older, we outgrow them. Don't outgrow this picture book of the Old Testament. It gives us wonderful images and illustrations of what the gospel is. But what do they need in order to enter into the promised land? Faith. And faith alone. It says in Hebrews 3, verses 16 to 19, For who, having heard, rebelled, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not, he would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see... They could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief. Without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please God. It says also in Hebrews 11.6, But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. See, we can seek many things for many different reasons. We may be seeking fellowship and friendship. People are very alone in the world. We may be seeking all religious comfort to soothe our conscience. All sorts of things. But are we seeking Christ for Him? Because, friends, when we go to heaven, we will have Him. And we will glorify Him for all eternity. And if you're saved, you're like, wonderful we will never grow weary. We will, we will sing praises to him for all eternity. But if you're not, that doesn't sound very interesting. Does it? Make your heart rejoice the future. They saw a land, a picture of heaven. We will have in the future a heavenly Canaan, a place of rest. Why is faith needed? Because by faith we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This is the empty hand by which we lay hold upon Christ. We are beggars laying hold upon this wonderful, life-giving manna from heaven. It is Christ who turns us. It's all his work. It's all of God. It is all of grace that turns us from an object of wrath. To an object in which God delights in. Not an amazing fact. If you're in Christ, God delights in you. That's just something we, we should never, ever forget. But if we're not in Christ, God is a consuming fire. We need Him. <coughs> We need him. And we all know this. We've been taught this for many years. 
Sometimes people will say this, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. I know what people mean when they say this. There may be some ways in which this might be true. But it, is, it can be really misleading. There is a love that God has. A well-pleasing love. A love where he delights. But that love is not a love that he has for the unbeliever. He does show types of love, yes. But not in a way that he delights. It's not in a sweet smelling aroma before him. A well-pleasing love. In hell there is no love from God of any description. The scriptures teach that God hates not only the sin, but the sinner. He does not take delight in the sinner. Yes, there's rain and sunshine. There is multiple ways he shows love toward the unbeliever. But not in a well-pleasing way. In Psalm verses 5-5, it talks about this. In Psalm 5-5, it says this. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. It's not just the sin that becomes the object of wrath. It is the sinner himself. The sinner does the sin. He is defiled by it. He cannot come into the presence of God. Do you remember in the book of Esther? There was a law for King Ahasuerus. Anyone who would just presumptuously walk into the court of King Ahasuerus, what would happen to them? Death. And he's just a mere earthly king. Very powerful. But we think we can stroll in to the throne of grace. The most pure presence. How can we go into that presence without divine permission? Unless he too extends his holy scepter of righteousness toward anyone who will come into the presence of almighty God. All who will come in their own name will be rejected. Forsaken. All who will come in the name of Jesus Christ. And I mean all. Every single person. Every man, woman and child. None will be turned away. None will be turned away. John 3. 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. There's that divine displeasure spoken about once more. Anyone who does not believe, regardless of what their past or what they have done or anything else, if they do not believe, the wrath of God abides upon them. Our final point, the forgiven. So we've looked at the focus, the forewarned, the forsaken, those who are outside of Christ, And now we're going to look at the forgiven. The forgiven. It may not look from this verse, verse 5, that there's any positive truth here. 
It may not look like that. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. But what about the people who did believe? What about those who did believe? Remind ourselves of those who exercised faith in Numbers 14, verses 36 to 38. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought an evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But, but, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Why? Because they believed. And they demonstrated that belief by their works. While those who did not believe were destroyed, what about those who did believe? They remained. Who made it to Canaan? Who made it to Canaan? Those who had faith. Those who had faith. How do we know that Joshua and Caleb had faith? They obeyed God. They spied out the land as they were told to do. They believed the promise given by Almighty God. And they were optimistic, weren't they? If you read what they say in comparison with the others, they were very optimistic about the face of danger. They were almost thinking, yes, sure, there's these dangers, but God is on our side. God is on our side because of what God himself had promised. That's what faith is, friends. It is victorious over the enemy. It says this in Hebrews 11, verses 32 and 30 to 34. Hebrews 11, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, Became valiant in battle. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Faith is victorious. It is victorious over the enemy. It is victorious through a victorious and risen Jesus Christ. But you may be here thinking this evening, I I do not have this strong of faith. I I read Hebrews 11 Yes, I'm looking toward Jesus Christ, but I look at this and I kind of go, whoa, I do not have this faith. I struggle. I am weak. Dear friends, I am not saying for a moment that it is only strong faith that saves. Faith saves. The weakest faith saves. The question is, do you have it? The weakest faith saves. As long as it is looking toward the Savior. You may have many anxious moments. You may wonder, are you truly a believer at times? You may go through horrible anxious times. But 
Is your eye looking away from sin and looking toward Jesus Christ? Is it looking toward the blood of the Lamb to deliver you? And you say in myself, I have no way of delivering myself. I am a sinner. You may have many anxious moments and doubts, but are you looking to the Savior? Isaiah 42 verse 3 says this, A bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. You may be a bruised reed here this evening. He will not quench you. Trust in him. If you have faith, even a mustard seed of faith, the smallest degree of faith, you will make it to Canaan. Not a piece of land, but a heavenly home. A place of rest from your enemies. A place of peace. A place of joy. It says in Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. So when you're going through difficult times, remember this. Not a word failed of any good thing that God had promised them then. Not a word will fail for you and the promises that God has made to you this very day if you've trusted in him. All came to pass and dear friend for you all will come to pass are you on your way to Canaan is that your home it's possible that the the world can be your home is heaven your home and you long to, to be there and if heaven is your home and you've looked to Jesus Christ you are forgiven friends you are forgiven in Jesus Christ In this fifth verse of Jude, Jude has given us an example to emphasize the danger. To emphasize the danger. He's really trying to focus in on, hey, here's something you know about. If you've been a Christian for long enough, you know about this example. Here's what you know and may have forgotten. Not all who cry, Lord, Lord, in that day will be accepted. Not all those who are part of the outward visible expression of the church are truly saved. Are you saved? Who do you trust? What do you trust in? What do you hope in? What is your future? What do you what is, what makes you excited about? All must trust, not self, not sin, not idols, but the living and true Christ. And be warned, dear friend, the danger of unbelief is not just out there. The danger of unbelief is also in here because of the way our hearts are. We can be deceived. The danger of unbelief is here as well. 
Jude wrote about those who came into the church. In verse 4, marked out for this condemnation ungodly men. Don't follow. Don't follow the road to unbelief. Trust in him. Cling to him. Look to him with the eye of faith. It is a faith that is a victorious faith. A glorious faith. But we don't trust in our faith either, do we? We trust in, in a Jesus. In a Savior. In a wonderful King. Whom faith lays hold of. Amen.